0: Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed. I'm Ajuna, and this is the channel where Eastern Theology meets Western Skepticism. Today, Eastern Theology is going to be meeting Western Theology. Our guests today are Keith Ward and Kenneth Valpy, also known as Christian Stachyswamy. Keith Ward is a British philosopher, theologian and Anglican priest who has held various positions, including Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. His books include Why There Almost Certainly is a God and More Than Matter. He's been awarded honorary doctorates from the University of Amsterdam, the University of Glasgow, and Virginia Theological Seminary. He is a member of the Board of Governors of the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. He's well known for his work in the field of metaphysics in which he makes a case for idealism, and for his focus on interfaith dialogues and comparative theology. Dr. Kenneth Valpy is a research fellow at Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, a fellow at the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and Dean of Studies at Bhaktivedanta College in Belgium. As a practising monk in the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition of Krishna Bhakti, he has been engaged since 1972 in the study and teaching of Indic cultural and religious ideas and practices with an emphasis on comparative integrative understanding of Dharmic traditions and a concern to relate these contemporary cultures. After completing his doctorate of philosophy at the University of Oxford with a study of Vaishnava temple liturgical practices and theology, he has been participating in an extended study of classical Sanskrit text, the Bhagavata Purana. Prav- his most recent works include an extended study of the classical Sanskrit text, the Bhagavad Purana, and a monograph of cow care and Hindu and animal ethics. So, Keith and Kenneth, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on.
1: Okay, my pleasure. <laughs> so, uh, my, it's an honor. We know you. each other quite well, Kenneth. Really. <laughs> we do. And, great. Uh, yeah. I want to say if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have been able to come to Oxford right you you open the door for me personally and you also open the door for uh the Oxford center for hindu studies so yeah i was delighted to do that Uh,
2: yeah uh, (laughs) the one of the ironies is that in in Oxford i taught a course on uh, religion the study of religion and i find that my Vaishnava students uh, often knew more about Christianity than my Christian students. So that was very interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I I just wanted to host a, a comparative religion discussion on hermeneutics, and I just asked Ryan Mullins, oh, who's, who would be a good academic for this? And one of the two names recommended was Keith Ward. I looked him up and invi- invited the two guests on, on, and it turns out they know each other because uh, Kenneth Valpy was one of, Keith Ward's students at Oxford University. So that's an interesting coincidence. So our advertised topic today is uh, hermeneutics, which often leads over into epistemology. Um, So I've noticed from reading Keith Ward's book on science that he was making some points that um, the qualification of the person having a religious experience matters. I assume that also applies for reading the Bible too. Would, Would you like to comment on that, Keith?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean I presume the word hermeneutics means how you interpret the, the words of a holy text, isn't that right? Is that how you'd understand it? How do you how do you interpret the yeah, words? Yeah, that, that's
0: that's generally how it's how it's used. Yeah.
2: yeah. Do you check them literally or metaphorically or in some other symbolic way? Um And uh, I think a difficulty for Christians, in in particular, is that a lot of Christians uh, tend to take words in the Bible um, literally and uh, as if they're true historically. And some even say that the Bible was written by God, which I regard as an entirely misleading statement because It was written over hundreds of years by lots of different people, which is not to say it wasn't inspired by God. But here's uh, perhaps the first major point uh, for a Christian, that although lots of Christians think you should just interpret these words as if God had spoken them directly to you. uh, In fact, uh, the Bible, of course, is written in Hebrew and Greek And the words of Jesus were in Aramaic, which uh, is hardly recorded at all in the Bible. So the link between the divine God and the words on the page, uh, written by many different people in Hebrew and Greek, which most people don't read anyway, the question of interpretation is very difficult because how do we know what Greek words from 2000 years ago? meant to the people who wrote them or read them then, do they mean the same as they do now? And I think the answer is clearly no. So that's perhaps <laughs> enough on that. There's just a huge difficulty knowing how to interpret texts which are translated from languages which we don't really uh, have a very clear grasp of.
1: Well,
0: <laughs> do you want to comment on that, uh, Kenneth?
1: Well, okay, uh, yeah, the challenges of hermeneutics involve certainly the question of, uh, of just translation, translation of texts. I, I, was, um, I was fortunate, I would say, to have um, a wonderful experience um, doing some translation of excerpts from the Bhagavata Purana I worked uh, together with my colleague Ravi Gupta, and I think you, Keith, will remember Ravi as well, since we were both in we our same course at the same time. And uh, the challenges involved are very much, as as you say, what do these words mean uh, in uh, in this context, uh, composed, possibly, and even the question of when it is composed is there. The tradition claims five thousand years ago. Uh, modern indology said is is doubtful of that, uh, and so on. Um, having said that, there is a sense within the the Vaishnava tradition that we can we can be clear of meanings through uh, what is called guru parampara, through the system of the channel, so to say, uh, of, of, of uh, transmission. Um, and, and it's interesting to see that within that tradition, the parampara system, there will be different perspectives. Uh, So it can can happen that uh, one interpreter will have a different interpretation than another. And what can also happen, and this makes it, I would say, kind of uh, especially fun, uh, the translation process from, especially from Sanskrit Take, for example, the very first uh, verse of the Bhagavata Purana, the Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam. One of the um, highly respected commentators from the 18th century, Vishwanath Chakravarti, uh, composed no less than five different uh, translations of the same text. Uh, He he took the same words (laughs) and he said, well, you can take it as, you know, this word, yasya yataha,' the beginning of the verse. You can take it as meaning uh, the creation of the world, uh, but you can also take it as uh, meaning the beginning of the process of uh, aesthetic relish, what is called rasa. Uh, And like that, so he he plays with, he openly says, you can take it this way, you can also take it this way, and why not a a third and a fourth and a fifth way as well? And he doesn't have a problem with that. Uh, and And so there can be different interpretations accommodated. Yeah. I think you can see a very similar thing in the first
2: words of the Bible which are in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, so in the beginning. Uh, mm. And in the beginning could mean in the beginning of everything. I mean, there was nothing before that. Or it could mean in the beginning of this universe, though there have been other universes than this. Um, mm. And so there, are, the text itself doesn't tell you what it means, the <laughs> beginning of what. Uh, uh, and there are similar arguments about uh, was there a primitive chaos in the Bible? Uh, the spirit of God uh, moved on the face of the waters, the tohu, the, the great deep in Hebrew. And um, does that mean there was a great deep before God shaped it into the world? Or does it mean no, God created the deep as well? So though. Uh, If if you look at the text, you simply cannot tell, just by reading it, which of those interpretations are correct. And I think, again, a similarity with what you're saying is there are traditions of interpretation within Christianity. So John Calvin, a Protestant, has one way of interpreting these. He was a very good scholar of Hebrew, but he, he has a different way of interpreting it uh from Thomas Aquinas for example um Mm -hmm. so different there are different schools of interpretation and you have to say um one problem that Christians have is they don't always know that (laughs) they think there's (laughs) one they've been taught when they were young that's the only interpretation there is and
0: yeah
2: so yeah, it, that's well, right. they, they never get beyond Sunday school. That, that's a big problem. I, uh, I, 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 yes. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. I, I think somehow the way that revealed texts come to us leaves open the possibility of variety of interpretation, and I think that's very important to say. There's not just one truth which is obvious it's clear uh, there's no argument about it uh, that's it that's what it means but somehow our traditions i think both in sanskrit certainly in hebrew and in greek leave open the possibility of quite different interpretations though we could all accept the text right can we also
1: (laughs) say can we also say that oh your sounds um, a little funny. there's some echo there, isn't it? Yeah. Is that in my case, or uh, it's what? better
0: now? It might just be an internet thing. It's it's all right now. Go. I, um,
1: I can hear. Can we also say that uh, the the entire, I think it is said in the tradition that the uh, the New Testament is in itself an interpretation of what christians came to call the old testament
2: yeah it certainly involves that i mean the most obvious example is that it is virtually certain as certain as anything in the new testament that jesus talked about the kingdom of god which in Mm. greek is basileia which you could translate as the rule of god anyway The fact is that nowhere in the New Testament does it tell you what the kingdom of God is. So you have to read the Old Testament to find out how that concept might have originated. And, uh, you know, so again, it's not when people, you get evangelists on American television saying this is what the text means and they're always wrong. (laughs) I mean, they're always wrong. Because the text doesn't just mean that. You have to look at the individual words in the light of a whole history of interpretation and of reading, which is very complicated and manifold. And I think this is great because uh, I would want to uh, read... Well, I can't read Sanskrit, Kenneth. I'm sorry to say I've had a look and... (laughs) It's very difficult. Uh, Greek's enough for me, and Hebrew. I, uh, I draw a line after that. I just haven't got time. Well, I can't read Greek or or Hebrew, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there is. I think there are lots of possibilities of saying these different languages actually can be interpreted as converging much more than the traditions have come to say they do. You know when. Some Christians say Hindus all believe in millions of gods, you know, so they're all polytheists. Uh, Well, that's just a lack of sheer ignorance, really. But it's come to be generally accepted. Whereas I certainly find in Vaishnava theology, a a lot of um, convergences of thought about the love of uh, the supreme being. Uh, Mm. And and I think the Vaishnav tradition can Mm. uh, cast a different, a new and exciting perspective on what that sort of love actually means, right? Mm. (laughs) So I think the interpretation can work, not just, you know, read the Hebrew and try and find out what they meant, but also talk to somebody who reads Sanskrit and see uh, if there are interpretations which are convergent, which converge mm-hmm. on a spiritual mm-hmm. outlook, rather than the ones which say, oh, these are all different, and furthermore, one of them is wrong, <laughs> and well, mine is right. <laughs> I think that's, a, that for me, that's the worst sort of hermeneutics, the worst sort of interpretation which says, there's only one correct interpretation, and I know what it is.
1: And the rest that's- of the world got it wrong. You're
0: all, done. They're all wrong <laughs> <laughs> so so one modern idea you get you know, is that uh an artist or a poet could create something and then the per the viewer of the art or the reader of the poetry they can find some meaning in it that wasn't put there by the artist so i've heard in the vaishnava tradition this idea is rejected so if you read a poem the only ideas that can be contained in the poem are ones put there by the author. So if there's multiple interpretations which are valid from a line of scripture, those were intended and they were put there. Would would that be accurate? Um, Not completely.
1: (laughs) There's there's some truth there, but one thing we have to remember is that uh, a good percentage a huge percentage of uh, the what we may call the Vedic corpus, in the broadest sense, is poetry. It's uh, composed in poetic meter, and um, and also the um, one of the one of the terms for for Brahma, who is considered to be like the cosmic engineer. Uh, He's referred to as Adi Kavi, and the the primordial poet or the original poet. Uh, The term Kavi can also mean philosopher. So from that perspective, if we think what is poetry, uh, it's, I would say it's uh, the, sort of height of uh, linguistic expression, which has a opening to depth of feeling. And our whole tradition, uh, the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition is all about feeling, it's all about rasa, it's all about aesthetic uh, emotion experience, which is evoked especially by uh, sacred poetry. And ultimately you have, um, philosophically or theologically speaking, there are infinite uh, souls or jivas, and each one is called upon. Uh, We talked about this Arjuna last time, uh, this little formula, that Narottam Das gives us, Sadhu Shastra, Guru Vakya, Hridaye, Koriya, Aikya. He says, um, I I pray that all of the words of uh, the the sages, Sadhu, uh, the Shastra, meaning the sacred texts, and the Guru, uh, the, uh, the teach, the, my personal teacher, or uh, guide, or mentor, uh, that they become a singularity, an aikya, in my heart, that I have a clear vision within my heart. It's not saying, you know, let everyone, or may everyone have the same vision. It says, may I have a clear vision from that
2: yep but I, I agree entirely with that. I think the Hebrew is also in the Bible very poetic. It's, 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 it uses words which don't have a, a clear meaning, like the word eternity, for example. I mean some very crude philosopher might say, oh the word eternity means timeless. And that means uh, it doesn't change, there's no time at all. Uh, but actually the word eternity has a much greater, it's like the word spirituality, if you say, what exactly does that mean? Well, It doesn't exactly mean anything, but it evokes all sorts of feelings, and uh, certainly there is more to life than just material interests, it certainly means that. But what but the essence of poetic language is that it is not uh, just having one meaning. It, it it involves the reader or the hearer in a personal adventure of understanding. I agree entirely. It's it's how it changes the heart. Uh, but it, it's not like saying, you know. Uh, how did the dinosaurs get into the ark or didn't they or how, how <laughs> <lost their doorway. laughs> and you give a scientific especially what speed was jesus going when he ascended into heaven and you say something's gone wrong <laughs> <laughs> so the poetry is 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 quite different in say um well ascension it's uh jesus sitting at the right hand of god you think well did God have a left hand as well? And who's there? It's gone wrong somehow because you're, you're saying something like Jesus had divine authority in his context. So, um, the other thing I just thought about what you said, Arjuna, about uh, what the writer intends. There is a thing in literature called the intentionalist. Fallacy, which I'm sure you know, but the intention it's not necessarily a fallacy, just so to say it is. The intentionality of this fallacy is to think that what a poem means is what the writer of the poem intended it to mean. So, and that's a fallacy, it's a mistake, because it doesn't matter much what the writer intended. <laughs> what matters is what is there on the page. And how you respond to it. And that might be in a way which the writer had never even imagined. But you're still learning from that poem something valuable. In other words, you can never anyway know what a poet or a writer intended. You can't get into their head, into their mind. So uh, it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake too, but it's only one point of view. It's a mistake to say, that what a poem or a holy text means is whatever the writer, if the writer was a human being, whatever the writer intended it to mean. The, in, the intention is a unobtainable, we never find out what it is. And B, it's not the point of the writing anyway. It's not it's not to to show somebody's intention is to say something which will evoke in you the writer might have no idea what.
0: <laughs> so the, the meaning that people get out of it could be intended by by God and just divinely inspired into the author, so the author might not have had the intent, but still but God has placed that meaning there for you to discover.
2: Uh, that might be true, but why would you think that God had only one thing that God intended to say and just said it so that it couldn't be misunderstood. <laughs>
0: oh, no, no, so if there's 20, 20 meanings that are, are valid meanings, God could put 20 meanings in one line of text because he's far more clever than we can and he can you know, a- achieve things like that.
2: Well, look, we're talking about hermeneutics here, right? So, <laughs> so the question, there's a very famous philosophy book called the Meaning of Meaning, right? It's a really stupid title, really. but the meaning <laughs> of meaning asks the question, what does meaning mean? Right. What, what is it to mean something? Right. And I'm talking now. And am I intending just one thing that I uh, know clearly what it is and I want you to get it? No. Words are coming out of me, and I'm thinking, did I really mean that, (laughs) right? Or perhaps they come out of me and I'm not sure what they mean, right? But they're still coming out and they have a meaning. But what is a meaning? I'm suggesting to you a meaning is what somebody takes a symbol to express so that it's never the case that one
1: word has one meaning okay i'm I'm reminded in this regard possibly maybe it's tangential but i'm reminded of ramanuja i know you're familiar with uh ramanuja acharya keith um who of course was not happy with the Uh, Advaita uh, idea of kind of ultimate, some sort of ultimate singularity. And so he emphasized that uh, God is described by language and indeed that every word is, he, he was very radical, I think, as I understand him, maybe I misunderstood, but from translations I've read, that every word in any language is, in some sense at least, a name of God. Yeah. <laughs> that every, every possibility of meaning uh, that we get has something to say about uh the character the nature of god so okay (laughs) (laughs) that's
2: a very poetic thought (laughs) (laughs) and if i sit here and ask what does that mean i i get the impression it's very profound but i don't know what it means (laughs) right so i say this is a table yes what's that got to do with god now it probably does have something to do with God, but it's not clear to me what and it leaves open. It opens yeah, up for yeah, me possibilities right. of seeing things in a new way and I, uh, so meaning is social. All right, let's, let's try that one. It, for a word to have meaning, we're all speaking English at the moment. Mm. So yeah. there's, there's a little society of which we are part of English speakers we're still going to differ a bit about what we think English words mean, <laughs> but on the whole, we, we understand them quite well. But the getting the meaning is becoming part of a particular group. Can I put it that way? The, the meaning is not something the word stands for, just like that, just one thing. The meaning is, a group activity of communication between different minds and the meaning will differ according to the group you're in
1: right uh, isn't this about the idea of language as being uh meaningful by convention
2: uh yes very close to that in fact the philosopher i have in mind here is wittgenstein Good old Ludwig. Um, yeah, good old Ludwig. And he used to say, don't ask for the meaning, that is what the word stands for, but ask for the use, namely, how is the word used in this community? Uh-huh. Right. Um, so if you say, hi there, how are you? And you say, what's <laughs> the meaning of that? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> It's just it has a use in a particular community uh, and another community might not understand it or might not use it. If I say hi, they might think it's rude. If I meet someone, I say hi, they'll think, oh, that's too informal. I don't like that. So it, it depends on the community. And this is where interpretation comes in. Each community has a slightly different interpretation because it's the activity. The meaning is the activity of communicating in that community. Wow. So it's not the picture of word mean stands for thing. It's that word expresses a social relationship in a particular
1: group. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. It makes sense. I, I can, I can. We say in America, I can relate to it but perhaps by, contrast, <laughs> perhaps by contrast it's interesting to look at, since you uh, just mentioned language communities, uh, there was in uh, early centuries of the common era in India a, a language community uh, which developed a philosophy about language. Actually there were two, there were the so-called grammarians and there were uh, the mimamsakas. And as as I understand, uh, both of them considered uh, Sanskrit language in a very different way from what uh, you are speaking. They considered Sanskrit as a kind of absolute language where uh, indeed words have a kind of absolute meaning um which is not for us to you know to to dally with or what, what do I want to say it's yeah. it is what it is but the the irony i think with the mimamsas in particular is that this is also uh, regarded as the school of interpretation where their whole aim in life you know, was to try to determine what the the message was of uh, the Veda, the Rig Veda, in particular, or other uh, Vedic texts. So that's a very different understanding of language. Uh, And then maybe somewhere in between, in the aesthetic tradition, the Sanskrit aesthetic tradition, uh, as I understand there, uh, there's sort of three ways of um, of understanding a statement. Um, there's there's the denotative meaning, uh, there's the connotative meaning, and there's the suggestive meaning. And the classical example of this uh, is ganga yam shaha, which means literally, uh, the village on the Ganges river. And one hears this and thinks, village on a river? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay, so it must mean uh, a village on the bank of the Ganga. So that becomes the connotative meaning. But then uh, the idea is to go to the poetic understanding, the dvani, uh, the uh, the suggested meaning, and that's where poetry, especially, is uh, is prominent. And here the idea is okay, uh, village on the Ganga, on the Ganges River. That means uh, that it's a very uh, there are cool breezes. And so the place is very pleasant. Without without using the word breeze, (laughs) without using the word cool, (laughs) uh, none of the words which are giving the idea uh, are uh, nonetheless implied uh, in the expression. So so I'm just trying to say there seems like uh, There's a whole spectrum of understandings of uh, where meaning may lie. Yes,
2: there is. I agree with that. That's that's very helpful. And uh, there's also the point that if we're going to talk about the supreme being, maybe language uh, is never going to give a direct reference to something that is true as we understand it uh so that so whatever you say about the supreme being is is never going to be um exactly formulatable uh, uh you know we can only uh, let me try to pick an example um sorry we can only, approximate. We, can only approximate. we can only approximate yes yes that's right um And we can never, uh, for if you say God knows everything, for example, we could never imagine what that would be like for God to know everything. I mean, does God know the things that we're thinking now? Because how could any being know what's in my mind? Well, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I can never get a clear idea of what it would be like for that to be true. So I can say it's true. But I can't say I know exactly what it's like to be true, and I think of a lot of religious languages like that. it's it it, uh, it can't. One Christian theologian, um, Baron von Hugel, uh, said actually, if you say something about God and you think you really mm. understand it, then it's
1: not God you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> You you you're, you said something that reminded me of uh, the title of a quite famous article among amongst anthropologists, and all I remember is the title of the article. I don't uh, remember the name of the author, but the the article was titled "What is it like to be a bat?" Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> so what is it like to be god well what is it like to be a bat <laughs> yeah indeed
0: what, what you just said about god keith sounds like also a description of quantum physics because you know what what richard Feynman, who if anybody could understand quantum physics is him he famously said that anyone who thinks they understand quantum physics doesn't understand it
2: yeah that's right and if that's true of physics, it's even more true about God, presumably, the creator of all physics. So, um, yeah, I, that that immediately leads you to say, well, however you interpret holy texts in the end, they're going to be beyond your understanding. And that seems to entail that any particular person's understanding of a holy text is only partial. It's never completely adequate. And if you accept that, that's quite important, really. It stops uh, stops anybody saying, "Mm, ah, this is absolutely true. And what you say is absolutely false. That's the, that I think is the great heresy of religious believers and indeed of everybody to say, well, this is the Mm -hmm. truth. And uh, about ultimate reality, and everybody else is wrong because I know what it is. Uh, and I think can, you can, you can
0: yeah. never say that. Can we say the... the... right. Some yeah. uh, 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 It might come uh, right. It seems to come right after you talk for a couple of seconds. I think because your internet's low, it, it doesn't send a signal unless you're actually talking. And then it takes a minute to come right. OK. Yeah, no, I was there. just
1: thinking, it seems like Keith, what you're uh, calling for is. What do they call it? Epistemic humility. Yeah, exactly. I would call it (laughs) that. Yes. And you mentioned language as, um, if I'm misrepresenting, but um, as in some essential way falling short uh, of uh, giving us uh, the the reality of the supreme, the supreme being. This leads me to think about another um, perspective that we see in the Vaishnava tradition with respect to uh, mantra. Mantra is also, we can say, composed of words. uh, And there's a sense in which at least it's expressed uh, in such a way that there is a kind of non-difference between uh, the the referent uh, and uh, the the language referring and this is particularly said abhinatva nama no. there's there's a abhinatva there's a non-difference and we, we might say, well, what does that mean, a non-difference? <laughs> but there's a sense of a collapsing of the gap or a closing of the gap between uh, the, the object, in this case, the person, uh, God, and the uh, the pronouncing, the the word which is seen as a name, there's and it's it's a big challenge for us to comprehend that because we always think of language uh, as 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 designative of something else than itself, which to me calls it calls me back to what you were saying before about uh, our friend Ludwig <laughs> Wittgenstein, that he says don't look at uh, the don't try to look at the meaning of words directly, but at how how they are used. Yeah. So in the Vaishnava tradition with mantra, the emphasis is on use of the mantra, in, in the meaning yeah. repetition of the mantra, hearing the sound. And of course, in uh, Orthodox Christian traditions, there is especially emphasized uh, the repetition of God's names, uh, the Jesus Prayer, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Seems to be a common point of, as you said, convergence there. Yeah, I think that's true. And
2: uh, so, what does that say about this particular use of language? It says something about the use of language here is not to stand for something else, but to evoke in the speaker the person who's using those words a particular state of unity with the ultimate reality mm, which yes. you you, can, you don't go on to describe any further you know because
1: yes it's it's, it's evoking so. i still remember a comment you made uh in our class you you won't remember probably because You've had so many <laughs> students. Yes, uh, you, you, had, you had our small group over uh, to your residence at Christchurch College, and uh, it was, I think it was a Sunday, and uh, suddenly you said, oh, excuse me, I just realized I have to conduct the service uh, in the cathedral. Uh, you're all welcome to come. And so we came, and we attended the service, and it was very wonderful. And I still remember you said, and you can sing the songs. You don't have to believe them. Uh, When it comes to singing, you don't have to believe it. That's right. So we were all happily singing the hymns, although We've, I found them very, uh, very nice. They were glorifying, uh, so that, that I'm mentioning this because, uh, of course, song is also invoking. You use the word invoking, and I think this is very much uh, what is going on, uh, specifically with mantra, and I'm I'm thinking specifically of the mantra for which the Hare Krishnas are so well-known, the Hare Krishna Mantra, Mm, uh, because the the Sanskrit, grammatically, the form of that mantra is the vocative case, which means you are calling to someone directly, uh, which means you are invoking the Mm. person. So that idea is there. So I guess what I'm thinking is there's really quite a range of ways to understand how language works, uh, how it's used, um, about different, as you said, um, depending very much on community, like if I go into a group of people somewhere um, in the next town here, Kamyanagora, and start talking about the Veda, Even if if I could speak uh, fluent Polish, which I by no means can do, uh, they would just look at me, you know, which planet did you come from? No idea. But um, there is a sense also that that language is somehow special. In fact, Sanskrit uh, is, uh, the word Sanskrit is, sometimes translated as sanskrita as as purified or refined it's it's a language which has a particular potency yeah now i don't know where i'm going with this but just um,
0: so my understanding of of the idea that language falls short is that you know like the sanskrit language is, doesn't fall short but english may but sanskrit language falls short to people who don't have the relevant concepts it means nothing to you know like for example if you want to tell somebody what it's like to eat a mango and they've never eaten a mango before you just can't possibly describe it but for people who have experienced love of God then the Sanskrit language can perfectly describe what they've experienced because they have the concept that the words can evoke in their mind
1: it could But I think the point Keith's making is still valid, Uh, even with Sanskrit. We can see that um, there are different styles of Sanskrit that have developed over time. Uh, There's early Vedic Sanskrit. In fact, one scholar insisted to me, said, Vedic, Uh, don't call it Sanskrit, it's Vedic, okay? Uh, then there's classical Sanskrit and then there's medieval Sanskrit and um, I don't know if there's modern Sanskrit. I mean, there are, there are scholars who uh, conduct um, lectures in Sanskrit in India. Sure. But there are changes uh, in the language as well, at least in how it's used in a particular time and in a particular community. So it's not, you know, it's often said, Sanskrit is a dead language. Um, well, a dead language would mean a language which nobody speaks, it seems to me. But there are people who do speak Sanskrit um, and, and, uh, and understand when someone speaks and so on. So it's a living language, which means, we may say also about language, that it, by its nature, it is changing over time. So it's changing in terms of community, and it's also changing in terms of time. But again, the, the Vedic tradition insists that there is a timelessness uh, to this transmission uh, of, of the truths of, of Veda. So it's there's a tension there.
2: Yes, it's it's interesting when you look at different world faiths, they all seem to say the same sort of thing about their own language. But if you say, Arjuna, that uh, Sanskrit is uh, particularly uh, appropriate to the supreme being. Well, a Muslim would say, no, no, Arabic is uh, absolutely the language. And uh, uh, a Jew would say, no, 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 it's the Hebrew. That's clearly the language of God. So um, don't you think there's something a little bit odd about that? um, that, Well, the difference
0: is I'm right and they're wrong.
2: Yes. No, it says something about the importance of language, but that actually that importance doesn't lie in the unique capacity of a particular community language to convey the absolute truth. It, it, It sounds more as though, I mean, there are people who think in the Christian church that Latin ought to be the language of worship. But I mean, if you're Greek, that's ridiculous. Uh, it ought to be Greek. And if you're English, well, I don't know what you know about the English, but they think Elizabethan English, you know, thou art coming here, oh Lord. They think that sort of language, which nobody else speaks, of course, uh, is the language of God. And they say, you can't change that language. It's absolutely, this is it, right? And uh, well, let me give you this example. It's very interesting. People often say when you talk about God as a Christian, you should say, Thou, O Lord, art great. Thou art great. Now, the word thou is second person singular, like two in French, you know, and uh, it means you have a specially intimate relationship with the person. But actually, yeah. Christians don't think that's true. They think the word thou is used because it makes God an object of reverence, which yeah. is the opposite what the word thou meant in the 16th century when people really used it it's like saying you hey you, you come here <laughs> so, <laughs> so that word thou has completely changed its use it, it used to mean I, i've got i know you well i've got an intimate relationship but now it means oh this is reserved for god thou oh lord art great but you don't say art thou coming to the cinema with me tonight you know, Um, So there's something odd about saying this language intrinsically carries um, the truth I just think that's a bit odd There are too many different people who think that
0: Well, I mean, uh, there's many people who think that their scientific hypothesis is correct It doesn't mean that none of them are correct
2: uh, It's true, but it
0: means
1: that most of them are wrong (laughs)
0: Yeah, for sure, yeah. (laughs) But I think
1: there's something else here, uh, and that is an impulse uh, of uh, looking for a sacred language. That language uh, is, you know, we we use it in everyday ways uh, for all kinds of things. And perhaps it has also to do with, a problem that's been recognized by anthropologists which is that uh, we human beings and not only human beings but uh, animals all kinds of animals have different ways of enacting deception but humans are especially adept at deception and particularly through language uh in other words we know how to lie and so there's there's a, a seeking for a language in which truth always somehow comes through no yeah. matter no matter what we do or think uh or say uh it will it, it will descend it will come through the, the revelation uh, will have its power and there's a sense that uh, let us find that language that works, uh, that does that job. And as you're saying, the problem is everybody's saying, well, you're talking about my language, namely Arabic or uh, whatever it is. I met some Amish people uh, a couple of years ago, very nice people in, in Pennsylvania and uh their sacred language is a kind of um you know 18th century german mm, uh, yeah. that's <laughs> right so, i think the truth is that uh,
2: there are specific religious uses of language i think in ordinary sanskrit uh when it well it was probably never used by ordinary people it was only used by brahmins wasn't it i think but and if there Mm. was an ordinary Mm. sanskrit that you used in the marketplace that wouldn't Mm. be thought Mm. of as particularly important it's only when you give that language especially religious use so there are you associate with certain rituals Mm. with certain bodily postures uh with certain states of mind uh and it just seems to me that many different languages could have this sacred use and it's the sacred use that matters rather than the grammar or the exact noises that you make when you speak Right? <laughs> um, so it would seem to be a mistake yeah. to say this language i mean i'm a christian and i know New Testament was written in Greek, but I don't think Greek's particularly important. In fact, in the New Testament, some of the Greek is rather poor grammatically. It <laughs> makes mistakes, um, grammatical mistakes. Um, but there are some phrases which you get used to, which which have a, a, a that again, I go back to the word evoke or invoke that, this invocative aspect. But that could be any language if you gave it that use. I'm concentrating on it's not the language. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Sanskrit, but it's not intrinsically better than Hebrew.
0: (laughs) So one question we could ask is if this could be examined empirically you know like for example with sanskrit they find that people who memorize sanskrit slokas there's some benefits to their brain maybe they would get the same benefit memorizing slokas in any language that's possible but also one thing that's beautiful about sanskrit is the grammatical flexibility so you can take any word and turn it into a name any kind of name any any word can have any kind of word form whereas in english when you're doing philosophy often you want to use a word you know on all sides of your idea but the word just lacks the grammatic grammar for you to be able to use it like that so i heard a talk once where like he was using a word and he's like in here we ran out of the grammar and then he just made up a use for the word or like you know the world to world and all its worldliness or something whereas in sanskrit you can do this and in philosophy it's nice to use the same word all the way through for clarity but in english often you'll have to for the same idea just change words because the grammar falls short
2: Yeah, well, Americans have no difficulty with changing English uh, into weird forms. (laughs) I beg
1: your pardon.
2: (laughs) I think it's a lot more convention about this. I mean, I'm sticking to the view that language is a matter of social convention, that there are particular religious conventions in many different languages. And uh, I don't want to turn language into magic. I don't want to turn, I don't want to turn, e in invoking language into a language of power where you you're saying the words like in a magic spell will cause something to happen. I think that's a superstitious view, and we should move beyond that. Really, right? I'm not against Sanskrit. I'm I don't speak it at all, but um, I would have thought. I mean, I read people like Romandriger in English translation, obviously. Now, am I losing something? Well, yes, I'm, I'm losing something. It means I'm probably never able to really discover how that writer meant when he wrote those words. He was in such a different culture, but I can still have my own relationship to God transformed by those words,
1: right? Yeah. Even translations. Yeah, and and Ramanuja Ramanuj- in Sanskrit—that is very dense and very difficult Sanskrit, I have to say. But right. it reminds me um, this point about conventional or super uh, or magical. Um, I'm reminded that many years ago in our our society, uh, my own uh, preceptor, teacher, guru, Swami Prabhupada was instructing one of his students, uh, one of my colleagues in some of the ritual practices uh, that are done in the temple, which traditionally involved uh, pronunciation of various Sanskrit mantras, uh, prayers, Mm. and so on. And Swami Prabhupada said to him, don't worry about the Sanskrit, you can do it all in English if you like. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So he he was it was uh, that point is agreeing with your point that the 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 language in itself as such uh need not be uh the the only channel by which truth uh is is acquired i guess that's the point you're making yeah, I think uh, that's but right. but language yeah. on the other side without language where are we isn't it yeah i agree
2: i mean i think there's such a thing as the language of music we've talked about poetry but music is quite and important are- too. music can evoke lots of uh states of mind lots of sorts of feelings it can even uh many people think tell you truths about the world but they can't be put into words i resonate with that i think uh, there's something in that because it's the activity associated with language which gives the meaning to the language and if you don't participate in the activities the language will never mean the same to you as it does to a participant. I think that's the important point which I think has come out of our discussion actually that that there that, uh, mm-hmm. are communities which have special uses of language um, which can't be understood by fully by people who don't participate in the activities because how uh, to say well, why? Well.
1: Speaking speaking of, <laughs> uh, I don't want to yeah, jump over know. your wonderful point about uh, music, but uh, the the latter point that you you just made about not understanding other communities, I think this is something which is um, a major challenge in today's world. And uh, I, for one, have been especially appreciative of efforts, your own efforts uh, in your many books. Uh, I read, I can't say how much of the four volumes you did on religion. Uh, You did religion and revelation, religion and community, religion and um God, I Experience. The there. <laughs> I can't remember really. <laughs> anyway, you were trying to, you know, communicate across these boundaries. Yeah. And the other, true. the other scholar I was so fortunate to uh, benefit from, who became really my uh, main supervisor for the doctoral work, uh, was Frank Clooney. Oh yeah, and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you had exchanges with him as well. That uh, he was, he was, he is, uh, in quite fascinating ways, bringing traditions together through what he calls comparative theology. Yeah, and uh, his his exposing me to comparative theology uh, led me more recently to read a book. Uh, By, I think her name is Michelle Voss Roberts, uh, called uh, Divine Tastes, Mm. in which she takes, uh, she's making comparative exploration across Christian and Vaishnava traditions through uh, the lens not of language, not of Uh, of sound, of music, so much as of taste, but Mm -hmm. not physical taste, but uh, aesthetic taste. Mm -hmm. And in the Vaishnava tradition, the Godiya Vaishnava tradition, we are especially uh, reverential to Uh, Srila Rupa Goswami of the 16th century as a kind of major, um, yeah, he's he's uh, how to say, um, he's not Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas might be compared with Jiva Goswami, but anyway, he's he, we call him the Rasa Acharya, the the teacher for this aesthetics, uh, of. Theology, and what I wanted to call attention to is that at the end of her book, uh, Michelle Vas Roberts calls attention to one particular rasa, which means a particular uh, flavor or mood, which is in Sanskrit. It's called adbuta, which means something like wonder, uh, wonder amazement uh, and all the associations of that and the point she's making which i find interesting is that this rasa can be a vehicle for connecting one's own tradition with another tradition one can experience another tradition with a sense of wonder As opposed to you know we're right and they're wrong and so on yeah but rather to to say oh that is wonderful how they perceive how they, yeah. they understand God that is and that expands my appreciation my understanding of God from my perspective
2: yeah I must read that book obviously um, I'm, I'm I have to go now, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry to
1: say no, we didn't, we we didn't I the time. Can I say,
2: Kenneth, it's been marvelous to talk with you again. And I think we've covered some interesting ground that uh, has uh, suddenly increased my uh, appreciation of uh, how you see things and what you have to say. So thank you very much. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, oh, yeah, uh, I thank you. Keith. And uh, I have to apologize also that I'm hardly in Oxford uh since a few years now since right. well since since we've since we've lost our house on divinity road <laughs> yes. um, but i do look forward to my next visit to oxford and i do hope i'll be able to see you then when i come yes. i assume you're still living outside oxford i am yes
2: yes uh, but i i've got i've still got a christchurch email address if you appear in Oxford, I will be delighted to come and see you. <laughs> <Wherever> <laughs> you are. Thank you. And we can communicate in language, the meaning of which will remain obscure to
1: everyone
0: else. <laughs> <me as well>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Cool. I just wanted yeah. to make a few final comments. I've been letting you go, but um you guys speak, <laughs> but with, with regards to your point about language, I, I think there's something to it. For example, we don't find medical professionals who who don't speak English struggling to carry out their medical duties just because they use a different language. However, they may adopt terminology, but you know that's just terms. You can add them to any language. We can borrow terms from Sanskrit or from Greek or so on and English itself is a hodgepodge language. So I think there's something to that. And I mean, the Vedic idea uh, uh, had, does say that there's something, some spiritual vibration contained in the Sanskrit language, but Prabhupada did teach, you know, better to sing, sing bhajans in English. So at least, at least you could understand it. And whenever you read, we sang a bhajan, you said you, you need to read the English translation because what's more important is is getting the semantic content rather than the spiritual vibration. It's not like pixie dust that you just sprinkle on yourself by chanting the mantras. It's, it's about having the correct understanding standing. So I like that point with regards to language. Yep. Cool. Any final comments?
2: No, I enjoyed I think the whole subject of language and its uses in religion is uh, a fascinating one, which is still needs to be explored a lot. We've only touched the fringes of it, but I think there are especially mm-hmm. sacred uses of language. And, uh, and uh, the job of a, a philosophically minded person is to ask exactly what that use is and what it conveys about the truth, yes. And I think uh, in the end, um, different faiths which use different forms of language need to learn from each other to extend their uh, understanding of, of the universe under the divine.
1: I, what I personally find
0: from studying other faiths is that uh, when you're stuck within your own faith, you, you can actually forget the essence and to be stuck on the externals. But then when you uh, peer into another faith and you you start to see the that you know we use the word bhakti, the love of God, the devotion contained by these members of another faith with completely different externals, then you're reminded of the essence. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The the right. Tower okay. of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Um, you know, sort of tells the story of how all of this became such a problem. And mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to imagine. Maybe this is utopian imagination. Uh, a world in which we could uh, very easily cross the boundaries that are seemingly so insurmountable, uh, cross the boundaries of language by uh, some deeper communication. Yep, I'll mention that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we we can wrap it up there. Um, Thanks for coming on. I I can't wait to have you on again. I'd I'd quite like to interview Keith Ward one-on-one on epistemology or conceptions of God or something like that. So we'll, we'll see if we can organize that. (laughs) <laughs> we could do many topics. That's limitless. Cool. So, thanks for tuning Bye. in. If, if you like this, you can hit the like button and subscribe. Uh, if you want to see more of these content, this content, and in the stream, there. I don't have an outro video because I'm doing it in a slightly different way than usual. So, it ends here. Hare Krishna.